Today, we're going to be uh, talking about church leadership a little bit, um, and that's because in a couple weeks, we're going to be looking at potentially expanding the elder board and potentially expanding the deacons and uh, looking at, uh, you know, annually, we look at our deacons again and kind of have, uh, you know, time of affirmation around them and look for new people to be brought on. And as we do that, we also are talking about the the mode by which we bring deacons on. We're going to be talking about that next week at the Congregational Business Meeting, a potential uh, constitutional change. So with all that stuff coming around leadership, it's important for us to go back to the scriptures and just say, hey, what's biblical church leadership all about anyway? Like, what's the point of all that? And uh, I, I want to say something about that too, because it, you might be like, Ugh, church leadership, how's that going to help me at church at work tomorrow? You know, like, what's that, you know, and it might be one of those topics that's not like right where I live. I mean, some of you are church leaders, some of you are deacons, some of you are Sunday school teachers, some of you uh, sit on the church board, but uh, some of you are not, and uh, you might say, oh, how does this apply to my life? Well, there's a few things, okay? First of all, um, we are all affected by church leadership because our, in our spiritual life, we are very clearly led by the scripture to understand that we, our spiritual life is not our own. We are a part of a broader body, and we function in, in that broader community. And to the extent that that community is healthy or unhealthy, it has major effects on our own spiritual health and how far we can go. This is not just an individual relationship with God. We do have an individual relationship with God, but it's not only an individual relationship with God. It's also a corporate relationship with God. And our individual relationships with God are massively affected by the corporate relationship with God. So it's imperative that we care not only about my own personal uh, relationship with God, but I, uh, that I care about our church's relationship with God, because that has effects on me personally as well and on everyone else. And it's important for us to get beyond ourselves sometimes too, and to think about things, you know, in the church that are beyond just me, because that keeps us healthy. Um, when I'm only focused on my own spiritual life, I become a consumer at church, and I stop thinking in terms of getting by, beyond myself and being an, an effective helper and playing team ball. And I start losing sight of the reality that, that this, this kingdom of God we're a part of is bigger than just each of us as individuals. There's synergy, which is all of us together. And that means that we have to also be thinking about things that are not just our own spiritual life, but we have to be thinking about communal spiritual life. And uh, yet another thing too, one other thing is that, uh, you know, the church doesn't get a whole lot of media and a whole lot of press. You know, in our world, people aren't very interested in hearing about the, the, the latest church outreach that affected, you know, this community in a positive way. The, the, it doesn't make for good news to hear how, uh, you know, how there was this, there was this uh, deacon who was out there who grabbed a hold of their neighbor when they were in need and took care of them. I mean, even, even when, uh, you know, Princess Diana and Mother Teresa have a funeral on the same day, guess who's going to get the press? You know, Princess Diana, instead of, you know, instead of someone who faithfully served in Calcutta her whole life with the needy. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, the media will not readily turn to saying, what's going on in the world of faith, you know? Until, of course, something goes wrong. Right, and then all of a sudden it's great news, you know, and so the media very quickly picks up on any time that, particularly in leadership, that there's failure in leadership, moral failure in leadership, and 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 when that happens in the church or the government, um, it comes out a lot quicker than in any other any other industry, and rightfully so, if you ask me, because I think the church leadership should be held to a, a different sort of standard than other forms of leadership, and uh, so when you take the ratio of press around the church 
And you take, if you looked at the last 10 to 15 years and all the articles or, or news broadcasts that have been out there about the church, and then you made a ratio and said, how many of them are about failure in leadership? You know, it'd be unbelievable how much of all the press given to the entirety of the church, to the, to the full measure of the church, how much of that would be given exclusively to when leaders fail. You know? And so it's important for us to, to kind of quantify that in our minds because what ends up happening is it's really easy to kind of get cynical and jaded and to lose perspective because ratio-wise, there's all sorts of great church leaders. There's deacons who are doing wonderful work, loving on people and praying for people. There's elders who have faithfully served in churches for years and years. There's pastors who have, who have bent over backwards to help people out and all of that. And the church is so much bigger than just its leadership. You know, it's so much bigger. That's not, that's one little fraction of what church is, but it's really easy for us to get confused at times and certainly for the world to get confused. So it's important for us to focus a little bit, even just for a little bit here this morning to say, what's church leadership all about? A, we need to get beyond just my own world and think about the the broader community. B, that actually comes back and affects my life personally if the church is healthy and functioning well. And see, in a world where the church is not accurately represented, and certainly uh, the, just by percentages, our minds don't fully understand through the press what church leadership is about, at least in the church, we should be teaching what it's about. So with all that said, um, we're going to talk about it. Now, I'd like to do a word-for-word study and break down what's church leadership and exegete and that type of thing, but we can't because uh, you can't just take one passage that talks about church leadership and go after that and then leave the rest of them out there because you have to balance all the texts of Scripture when dealing with the broad uh, theological topic of church leadership. So this is going to be a little more of a quick survey this morning, uh, pulling from a few passages, but really talking about two major things. One, what's the primary purpose of church leadership? What's the theology under church leadership? What's church leadership all about? Why church leadership? What's the function? And secondly, what are the general categories of church leadership? What are the kind of roles and general categories within church leadership? There are the two things we're going to talk about, and it's going to be fairly brief because we have a uh, communion service as well. And so um, I told first service if, they, if I got too long um, before you know, ready for communion, they could throw stuff at me. I'm not going to say that to you guys because... I don't trust you guys. You'll actually do it. Like some of you guys have quarterback arms, you know, and I'm, I, it might knock me out. So you guys are not allowed to throw things at me, but you can wave your flag or whatever. Um, so uh, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4 is the, the first text. There's going to be two texts that we read from, a, a number of texts that we reference. We're going to do Ephesians 4 first, and uh, we're going to read a portion of that together, and then we'll pray after that. So can you please stand with me in honor of God's word? Let's start in verse 7. So if you have your text there, uh, you can turn to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And may God add rich blessings in our lives from the reading of his word. You can have a seat, please. Join me in prayer. I'm reminded again today, God, that um, that in our pain, you know, in our humanness, we live in a church that's made up of humans, and therefore it's a flawed church that has all sorts of problems and all sorts of struggles because uh, from newborn children to uh, the eldest among us, from those who serve in positions of central leadership to those who are out pounding the streets in their jobs, doing whatever it is that they do day in and day out, that all across in every corner and facet from the youth to the uh, adults all across our church, God, we are full of sin. We're full of struggle. We struggle with selfishness. We have our fallen nature. And because of that, we end up hurting each other. And when we hurt each other, uh, it's easy for us to lash out uh, in our minds and in our hearts against the idea of church. You know, we have expectations of church. And when those expectations aren't met, it's easy for us to get kind of jaded around what church is. And yet we have this picture here of your creativity, of what you're designing in the church. And a chapter later, you talk about how you gave yourself up for the church, making her pure and holy as your bride. And uh, church is a gorgeous thing, beautiful thing. You talk about the church in Revelation as that beautiful city of Jerusalem coming down. Uh, obviously to you, I mean, you, you're marrying the church. You think your bride's amazing. And you're continuing to wash her with water through the word and sanctify her. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for your intention with us, for bringing us in and making us a part of this church, to giving us grace, giving grace to each of us as you've apportioned it to us, to give us uh, gifts to help serve within God, to helping us be a part of this body of Christ, this bride of Christ. We thank you, God. And today, as we look at it, we ask that, God, uh, we, would, we would receive the beauty, we'd observe and behold the beauty, and that we'd take uh, joy in that. And that you'd also help us, God, to be faithful in, uh, in walking out uh, your idea of what the church is. And we ask all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, according to this text, uh, there's a lot of leadership that is outlined in this in this passage of scripture and how it all flows, who's to lead the church according to this scripture? Any any thoughts? Who leads the church here? Who's in charge of the church? Christ, the head of the church. So Jesus leads the church. Jesus, of course, is not a historical figure primarily. Jesus is not just a spiritual figure. When Jesus died and then rose from the dead, Thomas was able to touch him right? He could feel him. There, there was actual touch. He ate food. He was a physical being. And when he rose up into heaven, 
We have no record of him changing. I mean, his body could walk through walls and stuff, which he had a pretty cool body, but it was still a body. You know, he's still physical. Jesus is actually literally very much alive and well and a real being, not just an idea, not just a concept. He is God and man, fully God. And he leads his church and he's still present. Now he says that when he ascended into heaven, he again would descend in the form of his spirit and would fill up the church and that he would lead his church through his spirit and through his word so that's why we worship him in spirit and truth we have the truth of the word of god which is christ and we have the spirit of the word of god which is christ's spirit the spirit of jesus and so between his spirit and his word we are led and he wants to lead his church and when every time that we take communion we remember that this is us becoming that christ is in us This is a symbol of Christ in us and that the reason that this piece of bread is not just one whole loaf, but it's broken is because he apportions grace to each one of us. Each one of us receives some of the grace of Christ and we are not the body of Christ on our own. We are only the body of Christ when we are together functioning all within our gifts and working Then we're the body of Christ. Now the leader's job. So now Christ is the leader of the church and he wants to guide his church, but then it also outlines that there are actual human leaders, doesn't it? It says there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It lists five right there in Ephesians. Okay? So if Christ is the leader of his church, but there are also these human leaders, what does it say about the role of those human leaders? What should their primary job be? Okay, so here it says that they're to equip the saints for the works of service that they're called to do, which means that each one of us, as we've been given grace we all have a part to play and the the leadership of the church the primary job of the leadership of the church according to this text is to help everyone play their part in order to see christ come up in every portion of the church but when it comes to the philosophy of church ministers when it says okay these people are quote-unquote leaders in the church but christ is the leader so what does that say about those human leaders How should they be leading? Let me put it this way. You're like, what are you looking for, man? I'm going to say something and you're going to smack me because it's not going to be right. Um, There's a leader of our, there's a whole governmental system over our country. But if there's one point leader, it's our president, right? And so President Obama is is the leader. Well, he uh, wants to have, he has objectives in the relationships with countries all across the world. He can't always be in the conversation with those people, so he sends other people to lead on his behalf. What do we call them? Ambassadors. So they're ambassadors. Do they lead on their own authority? No, they lead on the presidential authority, on the, on the authority that's invested into them by the president and, and by the government. And in the same way, there are leaders in the church, but they don't have their own authority, do they? All there is is Christ. So the purpose of church leadership is singular. It's that they're to be conduits of of Christ's leadership. And once church leadership gets beyond what Christ is and beyond the leadership of Christ, it's on it's on shaky ground, right? And we, you know, and so that's why when it comes to how is our leaders chosen in the church. There's all these qualifications that are put out there in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. Prior to uh, pursuing more deacons and more elders, I would encourage that everyone, uh, before you have anything to say about that, read those texts. Titus chapter 1, 
1 Timothy chapter 3, which outline qualifications for eldership, for deacons. And there's three primary categories of things that are uh, required of church leadership. Oddly enough, it's not charisma. Okay, charisma isn't one of those things. Um, And really good visionary, that's not one of those things. Organizational skills doesn't seem to be uh, anything that's really listed there. You know, one of the other things that's not uh, a real big uh, qualification is get her done this you know get and uh and obviously not intelligence either because i just say get her done this um you know and so like you know someone being really intelligent someone who has the ability to achieve lots of stuff someone who's very skilled someone who's visionary great we should make them a church leader except that's not actually none of those things are a part of the qualifications of church leadership according to first timothy or according to titus and those are pastoral epistles they are the they they are the letters that paul writes specifically to pastors in local congregations to say as you're looking at leadership this is what to be looking for okay and so what he does is he gives them three major categories first of all there is one thing that gets mentioned they have to have an understanding of scripture they have to know the bible Okay, why do they have to know the Bible? Because if Christ is going to lead the church, he said what he's all about in the scriptures. And you can't have Christ lead the church if the ambassadors that he's put in place don't know his law, don't know his word, don't have an understanding of his heart and his mind. They have to represent him well. And the way they can represent him well is if they understand his word. So the leaders have to know the word of God. Second is they have to have a lifestyle that reveals that they've submitted themselves to that word. Because unless their own life is willing to be submitted to the word of God, then why in the world would we trust them to make decisions that submit the church to the word of God? You understand? And this is why there's qualifications, lifestyle qualifications are the biggest category there where it says, you know, they have to be temperate, they have to be self-controlled, they have to be able to manage their own home, they're not given to drunkenness, they, uh, you know, don't, people don't have a lot of accusation against them. There's, like, you know, all those qualifications. And, and that's, uh, you know, we could get in and talk about what each one of those means, but, you know, go read the books because there's millions of them out there about all that stuff, you know, and there's, in every context and every tradition has different ideas about what each of those things mean but the general category is that they have a lifestyle that reveals that they are willing to put what they want with their life and what they think is smart and all of that aside to do what the bible says they should do because they're submitting to god right and so they're letting him run their family run their home run their life and so therefore maybe they're a good candidate to also be people to help be ambassadors for Christ in the congregation, okay? So they'd have to know the word of God. They have to reveal that they have a life that's submitted to that. And then there's this other thing that you hear weaving all through it, and it's that, that they have the ability to hear from God, that they have a living and dynamic relationship with God. And that the spirit, and like, okay, so in, uh, we'll get to another passage in Acts, and it says uh, that uh, uh, Stephen, first deacon, when they went to appoint him and said, he's a man full of faith and full of the spirit. Okay, so there's both spirit and truth. There's an accurate intellectual understanding of the scriptures. There's a lifestyle of obedience that's submitting to it. Obviously not a perfect lifestyle. I mean, I don't, I, I've been looking for the, uh, for the perfect uh, leader, you know, to model myself after, you know, and there's only one. 
you know, and, uh, you know, and he's still leading his church and we can't take his place, you know, and so the rest of us are in the muck and we're a mess and we have all sorts of stuff, you know, and so none, no one's going to match up perfectly in lifestyle, but there's that general category of lifestyle. And then there's this sense of the spirit communicates through this person. Okay. So they're the three main things. Got it. They know the word. They submit to the word and they have a living dynamic relationship where they're hearing from God. Those are the three main things in the qualifications of leadership. Now, there is also this other thing that kind of gets attached onto that, and that's that there are actually gifts. And that's that, you know, there's the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Those are called fivefold ministry. Some have deemed them the fivefold ministry. Um, if you want to know more about what each of those gifts are and how they work, come to part three of the Spiritual Gifts Sunday School class that will end after part two, which starts next week. Okay, so next week you'll hear the Corinthians gifts, and after that you'll hear these gifts in, in Ephesians. Those different gifts, leadership gifts, they're different ways that leaders serve the congregation. They all can serve in different ways, but there's general categories as well, and we'll get into the categories, okay? So... Um, that's basically how it works. Everybody get the setup of like what church leadership is about. It's we let Christ lead. There are different ways that he leads. But the primary thing that we're looking for in church leadership is that the church leadership is submitted to Christ. They understand the word. Their lifestyles reveal they're submitted to Christ. And they hear from Christ so that he can communicate to a body of people what it is that he wants. Because we're not only a group of people who serve something that was already done. You know, we serve a living God who still wants to lead and still wants to communicate. So we need people who have submit, who submit to what he's already spoken, but also people who can hear how he's moving the church now. Okay, now here's the issue. And this is the problem we face all the time in the church. Is that sometimes we get to a place in the church where we don't sense God. You know, where we don't see him moving a whole lot. And we're like, where is God? And like, I don't see all the stuff that I see about in Acts, you know, where it's like he was moving with all this power and he was just these prophetic words and all this crazy stuff that was happening all the time. So like, then what, you know? And, uh, and th- uh, that has happened historically all throughout the, the uh, history of the church where we get to these spots where, where is church and what, what, or where is God? And what the church or the people of Christ end up often doing is they create kind of substitute structures for that, okay? And so we find either leaders who really know how to get stuff done and we expect them to produce to kind of compensate for the lack of the God production or we have, uh, you know, sacred traditions that we hold on to that we, and bureaucracy that, to kind of protect what has been, to slow down the denigration of that, you know. And those are different. Let, let me give you an example. In, um, in the Old Testament, who was the primary leader, human leader in the Old Testament? Moses. Moses is the primary human leader in the Old Testament. He, he's the, the initial leader of the people of God. And uh, incredible leader and all of that. But Moses isn't actually the one leading the people of Israel, is he? I mean, it's not like Moses could put a wall of fire between him and the, and the Egyptians. It's not like Moses could part a Red Sea. It's not like Moses could make bread rain from heaven. You know, Moses isn't leading his people because they're not his people. He is part of a people 
who God is leading. But God chose him to be a leader. And his primary job is to do what? It's to go into the tent of meeting, to hear what God wants, to come out and tell the people. And even when they're whining and complaining about it, he says, this is what we're going to do, not because of polling the public opinion or whatever, but because this is what God said. And we got to submit to God because he's the only person who will take care of us. Right? And so there's sometimes when that really delivers people and it's wonderful and they feel great. And there's other times when they're out in the middle of the desert and they're not eating the way they used to eat and they're pretty frustrated about it, you know? But Moses is still leading. He's taking, he's a conduit for God's leadership. Now here's what happens is that ultimately that tent of meeting is the place where God's presence is, right? And he, and that tabernacle and there's the inside of the Holy of Holies inside that tent of meeting the tabernacle is something called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And who sits on the mercy seat? God, Shekinah glory. The very glory of God sits in the Holy of Holies. So God is leading his people from the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the mercy seat, uh, Shekinah glory, God's presence manifesting right there. Moses goes into the tent of meeting, hears from God, and he comes out and he, uh, and he whatever he heard from God, he brings to the people. Uh, his brother um, comes in and, you know, there's the sacrifice, Aaron, and they, and they sprinkle the blood everywhere because they're not worthy for a relationship with God. But so there's blood atonement to make sure that everything's okay because even in their humanness, even though Moses might be a great guy or whatever, he's not really, he's still just a sinner like the rest of us. And so he can't go into the tent without getting whacked by God unless he, you know, unless someone else takes the hit for him. And so that's why blood atonement and that's why the, the lambs were sacrificed and all of that. But eventually, he would go in and he would pray to God and God would communicate to him and he would come out and he would say what God wanted and God would lead his people. And if they ever stepped and and they questioned Moses constantly, constantly questioned Moses. And the worst was when his brother and his sister, his physical brother and his sister got up in his face and they said, who do you think you are, Moses? What makes you think that you can lead? And you know, of course, Moses was like, please don't do this. Please don't do it because God's going to do something. And he did, you know, and it gets because God will validate when God is called a leader. He'll also validate a leader, which is why Moses and David, you watch David and he, neither of them really defend themselves very much because they knew they were called. So they didn't trust humans as far as their platform for success, the way that politicians have to. Instead, they trusted God and God would validate the leaders. Now, what happens is is the people ultimately at one point decide that God's leadership as such isn't okay. And what do they look for? What else do they start looking for in leadership? A, a king. They want a king, right? So we want more leaders. We want, we want a king like the Canaanites have, you know? And of course, that wasn't God's primary plan, and it broke his heart. But God works with it, and God actually uses that prophetically in, in profound ways. And he brings another great king eventually uh, to come and serve, and that's King David, who also has a deep heart for God and has a deep relationship with God and leads according to God's heart. And in his own heart, he hears from God, and he leads accordingly and all of that. Um, but ultimately what we find is, is that the, uh, the kings of Israel and of Judah do not lead uh, based on God's authority. They lead on their own authority. And what happens all the time in, in leadership is just this, right? Where the priest isn't taking care of business at home and you watch the kids got in all sorts of trouble, the, the Israelite priests, and you watch the kings who didn't really care anymore about serving the people or helping the people or helping them get empowered. All they cared about was whining and dining and having a good time and being with all the ladies and, you know, whatever it was. And they ended up like they were party animals and got themselves in all sorts of trouble and didn't accurately lead. And then even the prophets 
who usually are the ones who you can really count on, you know, even the prophets started to get messed up by the end where they were kind of going rogue and they were getting paid to say certain things and that's when all the donkeys started talking and that type of thing, okay? So it got really bad and eventually what ended up happening was God said, I am obviously not the leader of this nation anymore and you're acting, you're trying to pretend like I am, but I'm not. So I'm gonna tell you what, I'm gonna pull out and I'm going to stop protecting you. And that's when the Assyrians come and they take over Israel, the northern tribes. And then Babylon comes and takes over the southern tribes and takes them off to Babylon. Now, when they get to Babylon, this is important. This comes back around. When they get to Babylon, God does not lift his hand from individual relationships, right? Who in Babylon had incredible individual relationships with God? Name some people. Daniel. Number one, I mean, that guy had an incredible relationship with God, didn't he? And some of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Eventually, how about Nehemiah, cupbearer to the, to the king who comes back and rebuilds the walls. You know, there's these people who have, and, and how about a woman? Anybody think of a woman? For such a time as this. Esther, you know, like, so there's, there's, these, there's these people who have wonderful individual relationship with God. And yet, the corporate relationship with God goes missing. Why? Because they don't have a temple. Because the presence of God doesn't sit in the Holy of Holies. Because they can't make sacrifice. They're not even allowed to make sacrifice to God unless they're on the temple mount. Because actually they did that. That's one of the things that really bent God with them was because they started making, when the, when the kingdom was divided, the kingdom up north didn't want to come down to the southern kingdom to make sacrifice, so they made their own altar up north. And God was like, I, didn't, I said you couldn't do that. You had to do it down at the temple. And so he'd get frustrated with them. And so now here they are in Babylon, and they have no way to have a corporate relationship with God because God's presence is no longer with them. It's, it's there individually, but it's not there corporately. So God is not governing them anymore. Now they're governed by the government of Babylon, okay? What should they do when they know that God is supposed to be the leader of their nation? But he's not. And they don't have any easy way to get there. What should they do? Anybody know? They should repent. They should repent. And they should pray. And they should say, God, we need you. And some of them did do that. But by and large, you know what happened while they were in exile? They changed the religious system. It used to be that it was all about this temple where you offer sacrifice so you could meet with God. But by the time they get back from exile, there's a new religious system. There's a new place where they gather. Anybody know what it's called? The synagogue. You never heard about the synagogue before that. You know, they come back and you start hearing about the synagogue. And what do they do at the synagogue? They discuss the Bible. That's what they do. They discuss the Word of God, and then they try to figure out how they can take the Bible and make it work in their life. Okay, so they take the principles of God, and they discuss the laws of God, and then they work very hard to integrate those principles into their life. In other words, they want God to lead, sort of, and they want His principles to lead, but they're assuming that God isn't actually there and present with them. So what do you do when it doesn't feel like the power and presence of God is there, but you still want the God stuff working? Well, then you take the stuff that you have from the past of God, and you try to make it work in your life now. And that's cold, empty shell of religion. 
that misses a living, dynamic relationship with God. And so God can no longer lead his nation or lead his people or lead his church because the primary institution by which it's being governed now is a place where all they do is study the principles of God and try to, in their own human effort, make that work and try to produce the things that look like God is present, but we can't actually mimic God. We can't fake God. So you can have a form of godliness, but it denies the power within it. And that's what happened by the time Jesus showed up in the scene. Oh, there was a temple, but when Jesus came himself, who was God, and walked into the temple, they didn't even recognize him, and he had to throw the tables all over because he came into his own house, and the people who were the leaders decided that instead of welcoming him and praising him, that they'd nail him to a cross because they didn't even recognize him because they had no living dynamic relationship with God. Otherwise, they would have known this was the Son of God, but instead, all they had was a shell of religion where they, by their own effort, tried to integrate the principles of God into their life. Which is why in church leadership, what we look for is, yes, people who know scriptures, but not people who are just theologians. Because there's plenty of people who know all sorts of stuff about the Bible, but don't have a living dynamic relationship with God. It's why in church leadership, we not only look for a certain level of, of lifestyle, we do look for that because it's got to submit to the word of God. But how about those Pharisees? You must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, Jesus says, in order to even enter the kingdom of God. What we're looking for is people who are broken, right? Who know that I am not righteous, that I am not holy, that I am not something special. I am a person who understands this is what the word says. This is what my life's supposed to be. But guess what? I can't actually do that. The synagogue isn't going to cut it for me. By the time you get to Revelation, you know what the synagogue's called? called? The synagogue of Satan is what it's called in Revelation. The synagogue of Satan. Because you know where Satan likes to manifest the most? The closest he can get to the truth without it being the truth is where Satan likes to hang out. So the most powerful form of satanic movement in this world happens in a form of godliness that denies the power within it. Which is why we've seen the worst havoc in our world be wreaked by religion. But the greatest things that have ever happened in our world have happened through religion too. Through the practice of true religion, as James calls it. You know? through a living, dynamic relationship with God that manifests in appropriate relationships with others. So what happens? We have an ability, and this happens all the time in the church in America, where we, we tend to not have the level of brokenness we need. And so what do we do? Here are, the two things that, here are the two ways that we go after it in America. One is we bring in corporate structures of dealing with church so that we can be effective at kicking stuff out and make it look like we're producing stuff, stuff and have a well-organized machine so that everyone's happy and we can fill the seats and yet the power of God isn't actually moving and he's not there. Or... We hold on to the shell of traditions that make us feel like there's something holy and there's relics of things that used to be full of the power of God and now all they have is just a form of godliness. And those are the two paths that we tend to go in church leadership when we're compensating for a lack of the presence of God. And then we look for people who can either manage the religious system or we look for people who can inspire us and organize in such a way to get stuff done. This is what's wrong when it comes to the primary way we view church leadership. Church leadership is not the people to, who make this place exciting or who get a lot of stuff done. And it's not the people who know how to protect the religious traditions and make us feel safe and comfortable. The primary job of church leadership 
is to allow Jesus to currently, today, lead his church. Got it? Are we in it together? All right, so that's the, that's the, that's the idea of what church leadership is all about, what its, what, what its primary objective is. That was the first thing. There's this one other thing that I said we'd deal with, and that is what are the general categories within that, okay? So that is the philosophy of what is church leadership about, but then there's different kinds of leadership. We're not going to get into all the different gifts and roles, but we are going to talk about the two main categories of leadership, which brings us to another text, which is Acts chapter 6. So can you turn there with me, please? I won't have you stand for this one. Although maybe I should. You can do jumping jacks and kind of wake up. Actually, yeah, let's do that. Let's stand as we read. It'll help us. The blood flowing. Flex the legs a little bit while we're reading. (laughs) Stretch. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. So you get that? You know, they kind of lived as a community, uh, you know, and, and they shared everything, like Acts 2 said. And so they had an internal welfare system, not like our government welfare system necessarily, uh, but they did take care of those who really truly couldn't take care of themselves. And, and they had a way of caring for them. But the, the problem was is that there was, a, there was uh, one group of people who weren't getting the distribution. And there was a real problem there, okay? So verse 2, so the 12... Gathered all, so the 12 gathered all the disciples. The 12, of course, are the original apostles that Jesus called. Those original, there are other apostles in the New Testament, but these are the, it says the 12. These are the original that he called together. He called them together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Okay. So brothers, so just stop there for one more second. Like, were they like hoity-toity or too good for waiting on tables, you know? Like, what is the deal? Is this like, yeah, we're not messing around? No, of course. They know that the Word of God is central to the, to the body functioning well. We all serve in different ways. We're not going to neglect this part in order to, um, to do other things that other people are gifted to do. So they say in verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. See that? Those people are full of the Spirit and they do have wisdom, which means God's present. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there's one who is kind of like the hands of Christ and another that's more heart, mind of Christ. One's mind of Christ, one's hands of Christ. Hopefully they all have heart of Christ. Verse five, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, uh, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, uh, Timon, and uh, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So now listen to this, okay? After all that, what's the next word? Two letters. So, very important word, right? Because it means that since all of that, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. How cool is that? Have a seat. So this passage starts off by saying, when the number of disciples was increasing, as things were growing, there was this problem 
The problem was as the infrastructure grew, as the community grew, so did all the needs. And so there's lots of needs. But what they're saying now is that once all these needs, see what happened was, is the guys, the 12, they had like 250 emails in their inbox, you know, or they had like, you know, like everybody knocking on their door saying, hey, how are we supposed to run this ministry? Or how are we supposed to do that? Or they had like their to-do list, which is getting crazy. And they're like, how do, and, and they, what they found was, is they were no longer uh, like spending enough time in the word of God and in prayer. And in the meantime, things aren't being managed all that well. So there isn't as, as much of the, the presence of God being facilitated and the organization is starting to struggle. And so there's this tension of like, ah, you know. And so they're like, we gotta get, we got to figure this out. And they're like, we know that, we gotta, that we gotta, the primary thing has to be the word of God in prayer. That's what it's got to be about. So we're going to focus on that. But we've got to empower people to organize and get stuff done that needs to get done. And so this becomes where you see the church really begin to have two forms of leadership. One is about the mind of Christ staying central uh, so that he can become the head. The other is the hands of Christ being organized through those who lead the organizational, the efforts of the functionality. Okay, and this becomes uh, the two categories. Now, depending on which texts you look at in the epistles and in the New Testament, they're called by different names. Okay, this is not clean and cut, which is why every tradition has kind of a different way of organizing all of that. There's the one category, though, that's like overseer, elder are the two primary words that you see. Overseer, elder, they deal with word of God. They deal with prayer. They deal with spiritual discernment. They guard the doctrine. They make sure that we're staying connected to Christ, hearing from God, functioning, uh, uh, submitted to the spirit of God, okay? That's one category, elder, overseer. There's this other category called deacon. That word diocese. Uh, diaconies actually means to serve. That's what it means, servant. Okay, okay so they, they're serving. They're actually functioning, doing stuff, organizing, getting it done, you know? And uh, they're the two categories. You know, it's more of a physical, hands-on. It's uh, management and that type of thing. Those two categories are not mutually exclusive by any means. They did say, we're not going to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. But you find these guys helping out and doing stuff here and there. But they're spending their primary attention toward the word of God and prayer. And in the same time, what about the deacons? Who was the first deacon that was named a deacon? Stephen. Who was the first martyr? Stephen, the first organizational leader who was deacon, was the first martyr. And why did he get martyred? For preaching the word of God, right? So here he is, a deacon who's an organizational guy, but he knows the word of God and he's full of the spirit and full of faith and he's teaching the word of God. So they're not mutually exclusive. All across the pages of scripture, there's an ebb and a flow and kind of an overlap of all these leaders and the, and the categories. But what God's saying is basically these are the things that have to be present in a church. And in any given situation, mix it up. It might look a little different. So we try not to get hung up on the categories and all the like nuances of the specifics because frankly, it's kind of like if you have an owner of a football team, you have the general manager of a football team, you have the coach of a football team, you have a quarterback of a football team, you know, and when you look at where one begins and where the other one ends, it's actually different in every organization. Sometimes that quarterback's the one who's basically running the game and calling the plays. In another organization, it's the coach who's in his ear and he's calling all the plays and the quarterback just throws the ball. Same thing with the owner and general manager. Sometimes they're more or less involved uh, based on, you know, how it works out. This is the way it is in the kingdom of God. Whatever the culture is, whatever uh, the, the community allows, there are categories of things that need to happen. 
and they kind of get, they happen in different ways in different places, but there are at least these two general categories of like the elder overseer and the deacon, one who's really about uh, word of God and prayer, making sure we're spiritually connecting. The other is making sure we're functionally doing what it is that we need to be doing. Okay, um, so those are the general categories around it. The spiritual gifts, the roles of apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, pastor, teacher that are outlined in Ephesians. They are specific ways that those categories work themselves out. Okay, so uh, and again, you can learn more about that in the spiritual gifts class. Um, now, uh, la- one last thing, and that's that uh, how those leaders get selected or appointed, how they get put in place, also varies. You know, uh, in, when Paul tells Titus, um, he says, go and appoint, I, I left you behind, go and appoint elders in all the different churches in your area. So he just tells this guy who's a pastor, go and appoint elders, just put them in place. But here in Acts 6, he says, appoint from among you men who can serve in this way. And so you find that there's both a communal effort in, uh, in assigning people to leadership roles. There's also kind of uh, authority assigning leaders roles, and there's kind of a, a both end, you know. And so, again, how that works itself out in any infrastructure of a church, it's fine. There's no real exact way to do it. But this is why in our congregational business meeting next week, we're kind of adjusting a little bit. We don't have to get hung up on exactly how we've always done it. We need to make sure that we represent the biblical principles in assigning leadership and looking for leadership. But how we go after that needs to morph if the kind of, you know, we have two different services, there's growing, uh, the way things are happening, is it's growing and there's different stuff going on. So we have to be creative and figure out how these principles work themselves out here and now, you know, and we, hopefully we hear from God around that and, uh, and then we move forward. So that's really how uh, the, the general overview that I have for us around uh, church leadership today and what church leaders are, what the, the job of church leaders is, what the qualifications of church leaders are, what the uh, categories of church leadership, and then ultimately how we go about assigning church leadership. Now, there's one last thing I want to say before we move into communion, and that's this, that as Christ leads this church, He leads his church not primarily by leaders. He leads his church primarily by his spirit. And he gives his spirit to each of us, okay? And that's why the the job of the leaders in Ephesians 4 is only to equip the body for the works of service that each person is preordained that they should do. So all of us have stuff that we're supposed to be doing. Leaders help facilitate that or whatever. But Christ leads through his spirit in each and every one of us. We are one single body. He is the head, you know? And we all have different parts. And every time we take communion, we are celebrating the fact that this is his body, that we are his body, that there has been a piece of the grace that's been apportioned to me and his spirit has been spread into me in the same way that it's been spread into you. And this is not just one loaf. It's broken up into all those pieces. And together, we all make the body of Christ. So uh, there's, there's no greater way, I believe, to end a little conversation about what is the church, what's the church leadership and all of that about than by having communion.